Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If you're new to the show, welcome. We're happy to have you. And please know you are welcome here regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast stands in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show are available in my Google Drive. The link is in the show notes. Got to keep this short because I'm a little under the gun here, so let's get right to the story. Five, the long conversation of Zamakona and his visitors took place in the green-blue twilight of the grove just outside the temple door. Some of the men reclined on the weeds and moss beside the half-vanished walk, while others, including the Spaniard and the chief spokesman of the Soth party, sat on the occasional low monolithic pillars that lined the temple approach. Almost a whole terrestrial day must have been consumed in the colloquy, for Zamakona felt the need of food several times and ate from his well-stocked pack while some of the soft party went back for provisions to the roadway where they had left the animals on which they had ridden. At length, the prime leader of the party brought the discourse to a close and indicated that the time had come to proceed to the city. There were, he affirmed, several extra beasts in the cavalcade, upon one of which Zamakona could ride. The prospect of mounting one of those ominous hybrid entities whose fabled nourishment was so alarming and a single sight of which had set charging buffalo into such a frenzy of flight, was by no means reassuring to the traveler. There was, moreover, another point about the things which disturbed him greatly, the apparently preternatural intelligence with which some members of the previous day's roving pack had reported his presence to the men of Soth and brought out the present expedition. But Zamakona was not a coward, Hence followed the men boldly down the weed-grown walk toward the road where the things were stationed. And yet he could not refrain from crying out in terror at what he saw when he passed through the great vine-draped pylons and emerged upon the ancient road. He did not wonder that the curious Wichita had fled in panic and had to close his eyes a moment to retain his sanity. It is unfortunate that some sense of pious reticence prevented him from describing fully in his manuscript the nameless sight he saw. As it is, he merely hinted at the shocking morbidity of these great floundering white things with black fur on their backs, a rudimentary horn in the center of their foreheads, and an unmistakable trace of human or anthropoid blood in their flat-nosed, bulging-lipped faces. They were, he declared later in his manuscript, the most terrible objective entities he ever saw in his life, either in Kinyon or in the outer world and the specific quality of their supreme terror was something apart from any easily recognizable or describable feature. The main trouble was that they were not wholly products of nature. The party observed Zamakona's fright and hastened to reassure him as much as possible. The beasts, or Gyayathan, they explained, surely were curious things, but were really very harmless. The flesh they ate was not that of intelligent people of the master race, but merely that of a special slave class which had, for the most part, ceased to be thoroughly human and which indeed was the principal meat stock of Kinyan. They, or their principal ancestral element, had first been found in a wild state amidst the cyclopean ruins of the deserted red-litten world of Yoth, which lay below the blue-litten world of Kinyan. That part of them was human seemed quite clear, but men of science could never decide whether they were actually the descendants of the bygone entities who had lived and reigned in the strange ruins. 
The chief ground for such a supposition was the well-known fact that the vanished inhabitants of Yoth had been quadrupedal. This much was known from the very few manuscripts and carvings found in the vaults of Zin beneath the largest ruined city of Yoth. But it was also known from these manuscripts that the beings of Yoth had possessed the art of synthetically creating life and had made and destroyed several efficiently designed races of industrial and transportational animals in the course of their history, to say nothing of concocting all manner of fantastic living shapes for the sake of amusement and new sensations during the long period of decadence. The beings of Yoth had undoubtedly been reptilian in affiliations, and most physiologists of Soth agreed that the present beasts had been very much inclined toward reptilianism before they had been crossed with the mammal slave class of Quignon. It argues well for the intrepid fire of those Renaissance Spaniards, who conquered half the unknown world, that Panfilo de Zamacona y Nunez actually mounted one of the morbid beasts of Tzoth and fell into place beside the leader of the cavalcade, the man named Golhathanyan, who had been most active in the previous exchange of information. It was a repulsive business, but after all, the seat was very easy, and the gait of the clumsy Gyayoth surprisingly easy and regular. No saddle was necessary, and the animal appeared to require no guidance whatever. The procession moved forward at a brisk gait, stopping only at certain abandoned cities and temples about which Zamakona was curious and which Golhathayon was obligingly ready to display and explain. The largest of these towns, Bagra, was a marvel of finely wrought gold, and Zamakona studied the curiously ornate architecture with avid interest. Buildings tended toward height and slenderness, with roofs bursting into a multitude of pinnacles. The streets were narrow, curving, and occasionally picturesquely hilly, but Golhathayun said that the later cities of Kinyan were far more spacious and regular in design. All these old cities of the plain showed traces of leveled walls, reminders of the archaic days when they had been successively conquered by the now-dispersed armies of Tzoth. There was one object along the route which Golhathayan exhibited on his own initiative, even though it involved a detour of about a mile along a vine-tangled side path. This was a squat, plain temple of black basalt blocks without a single carving and containing only a vacant onyx pedestal. The remarkable thing about it was its story, for it was a link with a fabled elder world compared to which even cryptic Yoth was a thing of yesterday. It had been built in imitation of certain temples depicted in the vaults of Zin to house a very terrible black toad idol found in the red litten world and called Tsathagua in the Yothic manuscripts. It had been a potent and widely worshipped god, and after its adoption by the people of Kinyan had lent its name to the city which was later to become dominant in that region. Yothic legend said that it had come from a mysterious inner realm beneath the red litten world, a black realm of peculiar-sensed beings which had no light at all, but which had had great civilizations and mighty gods before ever the reptilian quadrupeds of Yoth had come into being. Many images of Tsathagua existed in Yoth, all of which were alleged to have come from the black inner realm, and which were supposed by Yothic archaeologists to represent the aeon-extinct race of that realm. The Black Realm, called Nakai in the Yothic manuscripts, had been explored as thoroughly as possible by these archaeologists, and singular stone troughs or burrows 
had excited infinite speculation. When the man of Kinyan discovered the red litten world and deciphered its strange manuscripts, they took over the Tsadagua cult and brought all the frightful toad images up to the land of blue light, housing them in shrines of yoth-queried basalt like the ones Amakona now saw. The cult flourished until it almost rivaled the ancient cults of Yig and Tulu, and one branch of the race even took it to the outer world, where the smallest of the images eventually found a shrine at Olathoe in the land of Lomar, near the Earth's North Pole. It was rumored that this outer world cult survived even after the Great Ice Sheet and the Hairy Nafkas destroyed Lomar, but of such matters not much was definitely known in Kinyan. In that world of blue light, the cult came to an abrupt end, even though the name of Tsoth was suffered to remain. What entered the cult was the partial exploration of the black realm of Nikai beneath the red-litten world of Yoth. According to the Yothic manuscripts, there was no surviving life in Nikai, but something must have happened in the aeons between the days of Yoth and the coming of men to the earth something perhaps not unconnected with the end of Yoth. Probably it had been an earthquake, opening up lower chambers of the lightless world which had been closed against the Yothic archaeologists, or perhaps some more frightful juxtaposition of energy and electrons wholly inconceivable to any sort of vertebrate minds had taken place. At any rate, when the men of Kinyan went down into Nakai's black abyss with their great atom power searchlights, they found living things— living things that oozed along stone channels and worshipped onyx and basalt images of Sathagua. But they were not toads like Sathagua himself. Far worse. They were amorphous lumps of viscous black slime that took temporary shapes for various purposes. The explorers of Kinyan did not pause for detailed observations, and those who escaped alive sealed the passage leading from Red Litten Yoth down into the gulfs of nether horror. Then all the images of Sithagua in the land of Kinyan were dissolved into the ether by disintegrating rays, and the cult was abolished forever. Aeons later, when naive fears were outgrown and supplanted by scientific curiosity, the old legends of Sithagua and Nakai were recalled, and a suitably armed and equipped exploring party went down to Yoth to find the closed gate of the Black Abyss and see what might still lie beneath. But they could not find the gate, nor could any man ever do so in all the ages that followed. Nowadays, there were those who doubted that any abyss had ever existed, but the few scholars who could still decipher the Yothic manuscripts believed that the evidence for such a thing was adequate, even though the middle records of Kinyan, with accounts of the one frightful expedition into Nikai, were more open to question. Some of the later religious cults tried to suppress remembrance of Nikai's existence and attached severe penalties to its mention, but these had not begun to be taken seriously at the time of Zamakona's advent to Kinyan. As the cavalcade returned to the old highway and approached the low range of mountains, Zamakona saw that the river was very close on the left. Somewhat later, as the terrain rose, the stream entered a gorge and passed through the hills, while the road traversed the gap at a rather higher level close to the brink. It was about this time that a light rainfall came. Zamakona noticed the occasional drops and drizzle and looked up at the coruscating blue air, but there was no diminution of the strange radiance. Gulhatha Yon, 
then told them that such condensations and precipitations of water vapor were not uncommon, and that they never dimmed the glare of the vault above. A kind of mist, indeed, always hung about the lowlands of Kinyon, and compensated for the complete absence of true clouds. The slight rise of the mountain pass enabled Zamakona, by looking behind, to see the ancient and deserted plain in panorama as he had seen it from the other side. He seems to have appreciated its strange beauty and to have vaguely regretted leaving it, for he speaks of being urged by Gothayan to drive his beast more rapidly. When he faced forward again, he saw that the crest of the road was very near. The weed-grown way leading starkly up and ending against a blank void of blue light. The scene was undoubtedly highly impressive, a steep green mountain wall on the right, a deep river chasm on the left with another green mountain wall beyond it, and ahead the churning sea of bluish coruscations into which the upward path dissolved. Then came the crest itself, and with it the world of Soth outspread in a stupendous forward vista. Zamakona caught his breath at the great sweep of peopled landscape, for it was a hive of settlement and activity beyond anything he had ever seen or dreamed of. The downward slope of the hill itself was relatively thinly strewn with small farms and occasional temples, but beyond it lay an enormous plain covered like a chessboard with planted trees irrigated by narrow canals cut from the river and threaded by wide geometrically precise roads of gold or basalt blocks. Great silver cables, borne aloft on golden pillars, linked the low spreading buildings and clusters of buildings which rose here and there, and in some places one could see lines of partly ruinous pillars without cables. Moving objects showed the fields to be under tillage, and in some cases Zamakona saw that men were plowing with the aid of the repulsive, half-human quadrupeds. But most impressive of all was the bewildering vision of clustered spires and pinnacles which rose afar off across the plain and shimmered flower-like and spectral in the coruscating blue light. At first, Zamakona thought it was a mountain covered with houses and temples, like some of the picturesque hill cities of his own Spain, but a second glance showed him that it was not indeed such. It was a city of the plain, but fashioned of such heaven-reaching towers that its outline was truly that of a mountain. Above it hung a curious grayish haze, through which the blue light glistened and took added overtones of radiance from the million golden minarets. Glancing at Golathayon, Zamakona knew that this was the monstrous, gigantic, and omnipotent city of Thoth. As the road turned downward toward the plain, Zamakona felt a kind of uneasiness and sense of evil. He did not like the beast he rode or the world that could provide such a beast, and he did not like the atmosphere that brooded over the distant city of Tsoth. When the cavalcade began to pass occasional farms, the Spaniard noticed the forms that worked in the fields and did not like their motions and proportions or the mutilations he saw on most of them. Moreover, he did not like the way that some of these forms were herded in corrals or the way they grazed on the heavy verdure. Golathayan indicated that these beings were members of the slave class and that their acts were controlled by the master of the farm, who gave them hypnotic impressions in the morning of all they were to do during the day. As semi-conscious machines, their industrial efficiency was nearly perfect. Those in the corrals were inferior specimens classified merely as livestock. 
Upon reaching the plain, Zamakona saw the larger farms and noted the almost human work performed by the repulsive horned Gyaiafen. He likewise observed the more manlike shapes that toiled among the furrows and felt a curious fright and disgust towards certain of them whose motions were more mechanical than those of the rest. These, Golthayan explained, were what men called the Yumbi, organisms which had died but which had been mechanically reanimated for industrial purposes by means of atomic energy and thought power. The slave class did not share the immortality of the free men of Tsoth, so that with time the number of Yumbai had become very large. They were dog-like and faithful, but not so readily amenable to thought commands as were living slaves. Those which most repelled Zamakona were those whose mutilations were greatest. For some were wholly headless, while others had suffered singular and seemingly capricious subtractions, distortions, transpositions, and graftings in various places. The Spaniard could not account for this condition, but Gothayan made it clear that these were slaves who had been used for the amusement of the people in some of the vast arenas, for the men of Soth were connoisseurs of delicate sensation and required a constant supply of fresh and novel stimuli for their jaded impulses. Zamakona, though by no means squeamish, was not favorably impressed by what he saw and heard. Approached more closely, the vast metropolis became dimly horrible in its monstrous extent and inhuman height. Gothayan explained that the upper parts of the great towers were no longer used and that many had been taken down to avoid the bother of maintenance. The plain around the original urban area was covered with newer and smaller dwellings which, in many cases, were preferred to the ancient towers. From the whole mass of gold and stone, a monotonous roar of activity droned outward over the plain, while cavalcades and streams of wagons were constantly entering and leaving over the great gold or stone-paved roads. Several times, Golthayan paused to show Zamakona some particular object of interest, especially the temples of Yig, Tulu, Nug, Yeb, and the not-to-be-named one which lined the road at infrequent intervals, each in its embowering grove according to the custom of Kinyan. These temples, unlike those of the deserted plain beyond the mountains, were still in active use, large parties of mounted worshippers coming and going in constant streams. Gothayan took Zamakona into each of them, and the Spaniard watched the subtle orgiastic rites with fascination and repulsion. The ceremonies of Nug and Yeb sickened him especially, so much indeed that he refrained from describing them in his manuscript. One squat black temple of Sathagua was encountered, but it had been turned into a shrine of Shabnagurath, the all-mother and wife of the not-to-be-named one. This deity was a kind of sophisticated Astarte, and her worship struck the pious Catholic as supremely obnoxious. What he liked least of all were the emotional sounds emitted by the celebrants, jarring sounds in a race that had ceased to use vocal speech for ordinary purposes. Close to the compact outskirts of Tsoth, and well within the shadow of its terrifying towers, Gothayan pointed out a monstrous circular building before which enormous crowds were lined up. This, he indicated, was one of the many amphitheaters where curious sports and sensations were provided for the weary people of Kinyan. 
He was about to pause and usher Zamacona inside the vast curved facade when the Spaniard, recalling the mutilated forms he had seen in the fields, violently demurred. This was the first of those friendly clashes of taste which were to convince the people of Soth that their guest followed strange and narrow standards. Soth itself was a network of strange and ancient streets, and despite a growing sense of horror and alienage, Zamakona was enthralled by its intimations of mystery and cosmic wonder. The dizzy giganticism of its overawing towers, the monstrous surge of teeming life through its ornate avenues, the curving carvings on its doorways and windows, the odd vistas glimpsed from balustraded plazas and tiers of tightened terraces, and the enveloping gray haze which seemed to press down on the gorge-like streets in low ceiling fashion, all combined to produce such a sense of adventurous expectancy as he had never known before. He was taken at once to a council of executives, which held forth in a gold and copper palace behind a garden and fountained park, and was for some time subjected to close, friendly questioning in a vaulted hall frescoed with vertiginous arabesques. Much was expected of him, he could see, in the way of historical information about the outside earth, but in return, all the mysteries of Kinyon would be unveiled to him. The one great drawback was the inexorable ruling that he might never return to the world of sun and stars and Spain, which was his. A daily program was laid down for the visitor, with time apportioned judiciously among several kinds of activities. There were to be conversations with persons of learning in various places, and lessons in many branches of Sophic lore. Liberal periods of research were allowed for, and all the libraries of Kinyon, both secular and sacred, were to be thrown open to him as soon as he might master the written languages. Rites and spectacles were to be attended, except when he might especially object, and much time would be left for the enlightened pleasure-seeking and emotional titillation which form the goal and nucleus of daily life. A house in the suburbs or an apartment in the city would be assigned him, and he would be initiated into one of the large affection groups, including many noble women of the most extreme and art-enhanced beauty, which in latter-day Kinyan took the place of family units. Several horned Gyayathan would be provided for his transportation and errand-running, and ten living slaves of intact body would serve to conduct his establishment and protect him from thieves and sadists and religious orgiasts on the public highways. There were many mechanical devices which he must learn to use, but Golhathayan would instruct him immediately regarding the principal ones. Upon his choosing an apartment in preference to a suburban via, Zamakona was dismissed by the executives with great courtesy and ceremony and was led through several gorgeous streets to a cliff-like carven structure of some seventy or eighty floors. Preparations for his arrival had already been instituted, and in a spacious ground-floor suite of vaulted rooms, slaves were busy adjusting hangings and furniture. There were lacquered and inlaid tabourets, velvet and silk reclining corners and squatting cushions, and infinite rows of teakwood and ebony pigeonholes with metal cylinders containing some of the manuscripts he was soon to read. Standard classics, which all urban apartments possessed. Desks with great stacks of membrane paper and pots of the prevailing green pigment were in every room, each with graded sets of pigment brushes and other odd bits of stationery. 
Mechanical writing devices stood on ornate golden tripods, while overall was shed a brilliant blue light from energy globes set in the ceiling. There were windows, but at this shadowy ground level they were of scant illuminating value. In some of the rooms were elaborate baths, while the kitchen was a maze of technical contrivances. Supplies were brought, Zamakona was told, through the network of underground passages which lay beneath Tsoth, and which had once accommodated curious mechanical transports. There was a stable on that underground level for the beasts, and Zamakona would presently be shown how to find the nearest runway to the street. Before his inspection was finished, the permanent staff of slaves arrived and were introduced, and shortly afterward there came some half-dozen freemen and noblewomen of his future affection group, who were to be his companions for several days, contributing what they could to his instruction and amusement. Upon their departure, another party would take their place, and so onward in rotation through a group of about fifty members. And that was Chapter 5 of The Mound by Zelia Bishop and H.P. Lovecraft. If you enjoy my readings and want to commission me to read something you wrote or want me to play a part or do some voiceover for you, I'm happy to help. Just send an email to theweirdtalespodcast at gmail.com and we'll discuss details. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to support me on Patreon. It pays for the show and the guest readers who occasionally appear, and it makes me feel like I'm doing a good job. The $10 tier gets access to my reading of Wilkie Collins's The Moonstone, which right now my wife is reading the narrative, and I know how much you all like her more than me. Brian Patrick, thank you so much for your support. Ineptus Astartes, thank you. Matthias Hansen, thank you. It means a lot to me that you're willing to help support the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Please, please, please get vaccinated if you haven't already. Wear a mask even if you have. Punch a racist in the face. I mean, look what it did to Richard Spencer. And always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Have a good week. Then all the images of Sithagua in the land of Kinyon were dissolved into the ether by disintegrating rays, and the cult was abolished forever. I hope those images got a constitution saving throw. <clears throat> I don't even know if constitution saving throws go against disintegration rays. I don't play Dungeons and Dragons or Pathfinder. And you know why? It's because when I was growing up, my parents were like, Oh, Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, you're going to worship Satan and devils. And it's a doorway to Satanism. And ah. So I never got to play. And it's a point that irritates me to this day because I would love to play a game of Dungeons and Dragons or Pathfinder and just do a whole adventure path. That would be amazing and I would love it. But you know what? I haven't gotten the chance and I don't know if I'm ever going to. And now I'm just ranting about this because it fucking irritates me. Okay, let's get back to the story. If anybody's running a D&D game and wants to have me in their group, I would love to join. I can, I can play on Roll20. I can play over... Skype, you know, whatever, however you want to do it, I can do it. I'm happy to do it. I want to play. I'm just saying.